Good morning, Grace Church. Well, I will readily say that I love worshiping with you all. I uh, delight every Sunday getting to worship with you. Um, maybe the one thing I like work more than worshiping with you all is the one Sunday a month that I get to work in the children's church with the preschoolers. Uh, it's a uh, fun and uh, exciting time. It's never without its uh, surprises and challenges, uh, but it's always rewarding and, and just a good time. So I was in there, it's been about a year ago now probably, but one of the little girls uh, looked at me and as preschoolers tend to do, you know, she asked one of those big questions of life without all the baggage that we adults tend to crowd it out with. She just looked at me and she said, it wasn't really a question, it was more of a statement. She said, did you know God lives in the sky? And considering myself a pretty decent theologian and teacher, I told her, he does. Isn't that awesome that God lives in the sky? And because he's everywhere, you know, he is omnipresent. So he lives in the sky, he lives in the trees, he lives next to us, God's everywhere all the time. Isn't that cool? Kind of patted myself on the back for that one, you know, like, man. She nodded, took a moment, turned to my wife who was helping me in the children's church and she said, did you know God lives in the sky? And it's when you know you just really landed and killed it, right? When it's like, yeah, sure, okay, man. Yeah, I'm gonna move on to the next one. Maybe somebody else will give me the reaction I was hoping for. She was, however, onto something, though. You see, where God lives, where his presence is, where we look to when we need the Lord and need his help, these are important questions that we mull over and wonder from age two to 82. These are questions that we need answered. And these are some of the questions that the psalmist uh, is dealing with in Psalm 132. So you recall the Psalms of Ascent right, are connected, or are collected rather, um, by the psalmists into like a hymn book for specifically the journey to Jerusalem, to go to the feasts and the celebrations. It's kind of a road trip mixtape, if you will. So they're collected for this purpose. And Psalm 132 opens with a request for God to remember David's effort to find a place for God to live. You can hear it in verse one. Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured, how he swore an oath to Jacob making a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. You see, on a journey, you need a map. And just as these pilgrims needed to know the way to Jerusalem, we need to know where we're going this morning. So here's our roadmap for the rest of this song. First, we'll see in the first eight verses, the plea. That is that God's presence is worth more than we usually imagine. We get later in the psalm, the promise it is that God is faithful to his royal oath. And the psalm closes with our preparation. God is with us now and we will soon be with him. Those who come from uh, the Baptist tradition appreciate my work at alliteration there. So you're welcome. Uh, but let's open up this morning with the plea. That is God's presence is worth more than we imagine. Would you read with me these first eight verses in Psalm 132? It says, Lord, Remember David and all the hardships he endured, how he swore an oath to the Lord, making a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not allow my eyes to sleep or my eyelids to slumber until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. We heard it in the ark in Ephrathah. 
We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to this dwelling place. Let's worship at his footstool. Rise up, Lord. Come to your resting place, you and your powerful ark. So like I said, the Lord asks, I'm sorry, the psalmist asked the Lord specifically to remember the promise to David. Well, what promise is that? Well, this psalm is a recap, a flashback to an episode in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So you can turn there, hold your place in Psalm 132 and, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 3. 2 Samuel 7, and we'll look at the first three verses. So hold your place here. We'll be back and forth a little bit between Psalm 132 and 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, 1 says, When the king, that is David, settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house, while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. You see, David's desire here is for God to dwell with his people. He looks around and he sees, I've got this nice house. God for his king has built this wonderful house with cedar. It's elegant. It's maybe a little bit opulent. And then I look out my window and I see the place where God lives. It looks more like a tent, right? It's got some nice little coverings, but the place where the Ark of the Covenant lies, God's symbolic presence with his people doesn't look as nice as my house. And you notice in the psalm here, verse 2 as well as verse 5, he refers to God as the mighty one of Jacob. He does it twice. He says God is the mighty one of Jacob. I think there's a couple of reasons for this, but at least one, I think it has to do with this theme of God's presence. Do you remember Jacob when he famously wrestled with the, the Lord or the angel of the Lord? Um, and remember what happened as he left that wrestling match? Right, he wrestles with the Lord all night, and finally, he gets his hip touched, and he walks away limping. But he's asking there for the blessing of God. Right? He's not going to let go until God blesses him, specifically with his continued presence. Right? So he continues to wrestle. He walks away with a limp, all for the presence and the blessing of God. This episode reminds me, kids, you may have seen, parents, you may have seen the wall we have in our kids' ministry that's got all those attributes of God, right? This episode with Jacob highlights two. One is that he's almighty, right? So he kind of, he like, he's like with my kids when I wrestle, right? I may let him win for a little while, but then he touches his hip. I've never broken my kid's hip, so don't call anybody. But right, he's, he's powerful enough that he could, right? It was a show. It was to say, yeah, 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 I'm wrestling with you. I'm, I'm descending, right? And I'm giving you this moment, but it's a little bit there's a little danger there as well, but also there's faithfulness in that episode that God would in fact bless Jacob with his continued presence through him as well as through his family so that King David would eventually come through Jacob or, or Israel's line. So you see in that episode God's faithfulness to keep his promise. As Jacob wrestled for the blessing of God's presence, he was rewarded with the blessing of God's presence, but he was willing to give up even his ability to walk straight, even his ability to walk without a limp. As he wrestled with the Lord, he walked away with the blessing of God's presence, but it cost him something. And you see here, David is saying the same thing. 
He says, I'm not gonna lay my head on my pillow until God has a pillow to lay his head on. I'm not gonna sleep, I'm not gonna eat until the Lord's presence dwells among us. You see, David is not just giving a little lip service to God's presence, he's begging for it and he's willing to sacrifice even sleep for the presence of God, just as Jacob was willing to sacrifice even his gate for the presence of God. You see, David knew the value of the presence of God among him and among God's people. David had the the blessings of God right all around him. He was living in a house made of cedar, some of the most expensive wood at the time. He was king. He was one of the most powerful people potentially on the planet and was certainly ascending to that place. He had the blessings of God, but that wasn't enough for David. God's stuff was not enough to satisfy David. He didn't just want the things that God would bring. He wanted God himself. He wanted to commune with him, even if it meant wrestling with him and walking away with a limp. You see, it's so easy for us to become so enamored with the blessings of God that we forget about the presence of God. To enjoy so much the things that God gives as an overflow of his presence that we forget the source of life itself, that is his presence in and among us. David's calling the people as they sing back to remember the value, not of God's stuff, not of the cedar houses, but of God dwelling with us. That's where true value lies. And for the people of God in the Old Testament, God's presence was symbolized in this ark, the ark of the covenant. Like I said before, this was a, basically a box, right, with some handles on it. For carrying, and in that box were symbols of God's faithfulness, his promises, his presence. In that box was some manna, right, when God provided for his people in the wilderness. In that box was Aaron's staff that had budded to show God's faithfulness to Aaron and to his leadership. And then finally, the tablets of the covenant, right, potentially even some of the Ten Commandments maybe were in that box. And it was potentially a dangerous object, You recall the episode where Uzzah, who's one of the guys assigned with carrying it, it slips out of his hands and he reaches out to catch the box to keep it from touching the ground and he's immediately struck dead. And it's a strange episode if you're kind of in your Bible reading plan and you hit it and you're like, ouch, dang, guy seems like he had good intentions, right? He was just trying to catch the box. What's going on there? And I think R.C. Sproul is onto something. He comments on that passage. He says, Uzzah's sin was one of presumption. He presumed that his hand was cleaner than the ground as he reached out to catch it and prevent it from touching the ground. A sin of presumption. You see, often our unrepentant sin is the very thing that's keeping us from the presence of God. Our presuming that we are entitled to God's presence, that we don't need to hunger for it, that we don't need to strive after it. We just get it. We presume that any time it slips, we'll just reach our hands back out and keep it from falling, right? Our excuses, our rationalizing, our self-justification of our sin keeps us from a deep personal communion with the living God. You see, to come to God with our sin and confess it openly, transparently, seeking to see it put to death, that makes us feel too exposed. We would need to admit that we're not as strong, we're not as moral, we're not as different from our enemies as we like to think ourselves. Instead, we have to say, I'm just like that person that I despise. 
I too need to repent of my sin, to come before God seeking his presence, humbly asking for God to dwell, saying, I'm not willing to sleep, I'm not willing to eat until this is taken care of and until I can have the presence of the living God in my life. But do you hear the promise in verse nine? Verse nine says, may your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your faithful people shout for joy. May you be clothed in righteousness. Brothers and sisters, there is no greater garment than to be clothed in the righteousness of God. I'm reminded of the episode in Zechariah chapter three. Zechariah sees a, a vision of the high priest Joshua and he's standing before the angel of the Lord. I'll read it for you. You don't have to turn there. You can feel free to if you can find Zechariah in time. Uh, but in Zechariah chapter three, and as he's before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him, accuse the high priest. And we can put ourselves in this picture, can't we? We're standing before the Lord and Satan is accusing us saying, we're not worthy to come before the Lord. We don't need to bring this to God. We don't have any right to bring this to God. Joshua was, was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those who were standing before him and said, take off his filthy clothes. See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with festive robes. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues before you, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant the branch. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. See, the seed was planted here in Psalm 132.9, that he would dress his people in robes of righteousness. The seed was watered in Zechariah when he promised to bring forth a branch to clothe his priests, not with the filthy rags that they bring themselves. As we come to God and seek to say either one of two things, I'm not worthy to be before you because I'm dressed in filthy rags, or look at my filthy rags, look how great they are, I, I can stand before you. The Lord takes neither of those, instead he gives them something new. He says, you are not worthy to come before me, and yet I welcome you before me, but I'm not gonna leave you there. I'm gonna give you something new. I'm gonna give you robes of righteousness. He would sprout that branch in the person of Jesus. My friend, Jesus took our filthy rags with him to the cross. He donned nothing but filthy rags as he ascended the hill to Calvary. He took those with him so that, not just in his death, but in his resurrection, he could dress us in righteous robes. He would take the sin so that he could give us the righteousness. That is what Jesus did for us, and that is what Jesus still does for you and me today. You see, we no longer fear the presence of God. We no longer fear to reach out and touch the presence of God, lest we be struck dead, but instead... We can welcome it and ask for it and behold, turn our eyes to Jesus, not away from God, lest we be struck dead, but turn our eyes to Jesus, behold the living God because he has clothed us with the righteous robes that he promised he would. This is the freedom of faith that God's garments, that is God's presence are so much greater than our rags, that is our morals, our righteousness, our way of life, None of, these things, none of these things hold a candle, right? The things of the earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. If we have the presence of God, we need nothing else. It causes us, as the psalmist says later, to shout for joy because holiness and happiness go together. You want to be happy? 
be holy. You want to be holy? Be happy in God. Now, of course, God didn't need a house to dwell with his people, right? He wasn't sitting around tapping his toe waiting for a nice house because he really needed David to come and build him a house, right? We hear this in Acts chapter 7, Stephen's sermon. He actually references this episode. It says, David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God. It was Solomon, rather, who built him a house. But the Most High does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. Heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What will be my resting place? Did not my hand make all these things? You see, David thought he was going to do something great for God. David thought he would give God what he really wanted, which was what David really probably wanted, a nice house to live in, right? But instead, God is playing checkers. I'm sorry, God is playing chess while David's playing checkers. He's got a much better plan for David than some mere house. He says, yeah, we'll get to the house. That'll be fine. I've got something better for you. We'll see that in just a moment, but how is it that God dwells with us? Did he need us to build this beautiful sanctuary so that he could come live here? Does he only show up on Sundays when we show up and then the rest of the week he's here lonely waiting for us to come back? I've got stew and sandwiches waiting whenever you guys are ready. Is that the picture of God? Of course not, right? We didn't build this house because we believe that God can only dwell here. We built this house so that we could all worship together and experience what? The presence of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's in the person of the Holy Spirit that God dwells with us. This is the marvel of God's presence among his church. Jesus says in John 14, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. He's sending someone to live in us and among us. You see, it's easy to get distracted by debates about the Spirit, and we're not going to do that this morning. It's simply to say the Spirit's job is to reveal Jesus. The Spirit's task is to show Jesus. The Spirit's task is to be the presence of God among us by turning our eyes back to the word of the Lord made flesh, Jesus. This is what Jesus himself says in John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's what the Spirit does. He bears witness to the Son. So this is a good gauge, isn't it, of authentic spiritual presence in our lives, in our church. How do we know this is real spiritual work? Well, how much is Jesus being magnified? How much is Jesus being talked about as the Spirit dwells among us? How much is Jesus' name being lifted up? How much does he come up in our conversations? How often are we turning our eyes to Jesus? Is the work of the Spirit distracting us from or pointing us to the Lord? That's a measure of whether or not it's authentic work of the Spirit. And that's true in this worship center, yes. But it's also true around the table at our life group that Jesus is working among us. The Spirit is working among us as we eat and laugh and pray and confess to one another as we speak of Jesus around the table so the Spirit works in and through us. This is his work. He draws us into the presence of God because he is the presence of God. 
on an individual level, our prayers indeed can become consumed with so many good things, right? We miss the root. Fill me with your spirit is a prayer that's evergreen. It's a prayer that should consistently be in the cycle, in your Rolodex of prayers. Yes, you pray for the sick, right? Yes, you pray for more faith or more discipline or more money. None of these things are necessarily bad prayers. But apart from the giver of the gifts, all of those are worthless. As we pray for these things, we begin by praying for God's presence among us. Pray today, brothers and sisters, not for all of the gifts, but for the giver, for the presence of the living God, for the work of the Spirit in your heart and among those who you are committed to and in community with. That's a prayer that will never go unheard. So that's David's plea, that God's presence is worth more than we imagine. We see also the promise that God is faithful to his royal oath. You can see that in verse 10 of Psalm 132. For the sake of your servant, David, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a promise he will not abandon. I will set one of your offspring on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my decrees, that I will teach them. Their sons will also sit on your throne forever. So if we go back to 2 Samuel for just a moment, we see what's going on here. 2 Samuel 7, let's jump to verse 11 in 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel 7, verse 11, Ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, all right, so this is Nathan, right, speaking back to David. He's gone to God, brought him David's request to build a house, and the Lord says, ah, maybe later, but one thing I will tell you, the Lord himself will make a house for you, David. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him. This is the house that God promises David. You see, the Lord said to David, yeah, that, that house will get built, thank you. I appreciate the thought. Right? It's like a, when my kids, right, when, he, when you bring, not my kids, but when your kids, of course, bring you drawings, and you might say, that's a beautiful drawing. I love that. But the thought is what you, you love the expression of love, right? It's not that they're Picasso yet, maybe one day. But you love the fact that they were thinking of you. So the God's there, right? He says, thank you for this wonderful drawing. I appreciate it. But I'm gonna give you something so much better. Like I said, David's trying to play checkers and God is playing chess with his plans. He says, you think I need a house to show my glory? You just wait. I'm gonna build you a house but it's not gonna be made of cedar. It's gonna be a household. Brothers and sisters, your vision of God's plan for your life may be good and biblical and true and not end up being what God actually has planned for your life. You may have vast plans for college you're going to go to or the job you're going to get or the 
progress you're going to make into your career or the way you're going to spend your retirement or the way you're going to pass on into glory. All those stages, all of us have plans for the way that God will use our lives. And they may be good and wise and they may not be God's plan. James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel such and such a day. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you just say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But the good news is, like David, it will go exceedingly and abundantly over what you ever asked or imagined. It may not look like what you charted out. It may be a lot more difficult and take a lot longer than what you thought it would. And yet, if the trajectory of David holds true, he didn't get to see it. But it was something much greater than he could ever imagine when he dreamed up the temple that he would build for God. It is a great thing to want to do great things for God, but the reality, brothers and sisters, is quite often God behind the scenes is doing great things for us through and often despite the great things that we set out to do for God. You say, well, given how it's currently going, I'm not sure I can believe that. I look out at my life, and yeah, I know God's supposed to have this plan for me, right? A plan to fruit, not to harm me, and uh, that Jeremiah verse, right? It's on people's walls. I, I, yeah, that's a good one. But you say, that sounds great, and it makes for a good verse on my wall, but it sure doesn't look like my life right now. It doesn't look like prospering rather than harming. It feels a lot like harming. Well, you need to know something about David's life. You see, David's sons revolted against his rule. The promise that God made there looked to David like it wasn't going to get kept. Absalom actually physically tried to kill David to take his kingship. Solomon would squander David's kingdom away and set it on a trajectory through his unfaithfulness to lose all that David had built with the Lord's providence behind him. And not only that, but by the time this psalm is collected for this purpose, by the time it's put into the Song of Ascent's songbook, there's not even a Davidic king on the throne, most likely. So the pilgrims are singing on their way to Jerusalem, remember your servant David and how you're gonna put somebody on the throne even though we're in exile and we don't have a king. They're singing this song on the way to celebrate a feast that doesn't even have a king to preside over it. You see, God is faithful. And these pilgrims, as they sang this song, they knew that with eyes of faith in the promises of God toward the future were greater even than the present circumstances that the Lord had them in. They knew that their eyes of faith had to be pointed towards something in the future because the present, it wasn't happening. There was no king. There was no Davidic line. And so they're asking not just for God to bless the Davidic king now, but to bless the Davidic king in the future, to bring the Messiah, to make all things right, to fix what currently doesn't look fixable. And God is faithful to this royal line. It might not look like it. It might actually look a lot like exile. But brothers and sisters, God did keep this promise. He did make good on his word. Peter says in Acts 2, I can confidently speak to you about the patriarch David. He's both dead and buried, but he knew God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke concerning what? The resurrection of the Messiah. That's what he was talking about, Peter says. 
He was not abandoned, there's Jesus in Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. God has raised this Jesus, and we are all witnesses of this. You see, they said in verse one, remember your promises to David. Things don't look good for us. We're not sure we can ask for you to remember our promises to us because we hadn't done that much, but David was a pretty good king. You promised things to him, so remember your promises to him. In other words, keep your promises not because we're good, but because you love David. Not even because you love us, but because you love David. My friend, David had done quite a bit in his life to cancel out those promises. David was not even really due the love and faithfulness of God. So even in that plea, there's a question, right? Are you going to be just and merciful to keep your promise to David, even though he probably invalidated it by his unfaithfulness to Bathsheba, by his uh, act of uh, really murder to her husband? But be faithful to the king. We're counting on your faithfulness to this royal oath. My friend, if he would be faithful to his promise to David, how much more so will he be faithful to his promise to Jesus, the true king, the king that we follow, the king that we, like they in verse one, ask, Lord, if you're not gonna be faithful to me, be faithful to Jesus. I haven't done anything that deserves faith, faithfulness, but be faithful to Jesus. You see, Jesus has his just desserts. He has the right to claim the promises of kingship. He has not canceled them out. He was without sin. He obeyed his father fully, righteously, and perfectly. If they could ask for God's faithfulness to David, how much more so do we get to ask for God's faithfulness to Jesus because we are united to Christ? Lord, I plead the blood of the lamb. I don't deserve to be forgiven again, but Jesus already paid for it. I don't deserve your presence, but Jesus sits at your right hand. I am united to Christ. I am connected to Christ. That's the only hope I've got, and that's a good hope. You can count on God's faithfulness to his promises because he kept this one, giving up all that he could give up in the person of his son that is in himself, and he was powerful enough to raise his son from the dead. He's powerful enough to keep his promises to you. So the plea was that God's presence is worth more than we can imagine. The promise is that God is faithful to his royal oath. And then finally, we now reach the preparation. The fact that God is with us now and that we will soon be with him. Read with me starting in verse 13 of Psalm 132. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make it my home here because I have desired it. I will abundantly bless its food. I will satisfy its needy with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation and its faithful people with shout for joy. There I will make a horn grow for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown he wears will be glorious. Verse 13, the Lord has chosen and desires Zion. Zion was the symbolic place that God dwells. You can hear this in Psalm 78. He says, he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. You see, Zion is connected distinctly to the rule of God's king who was promised to come from Judah. So God's presence and God's king in Psalm 78 are connected, and that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, I've talked about God's presence. I've talked about God's king. Now I wanna show you how they're connected. But before we get there, I just wanna 
sit here for just a second. The Lord has desired Zion. He has desired his people. He has desired the physical place where his people dwell and he can dwell with them. You see, God finds his rest in his people. You hear that in verse 14. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here. Why? Because I have desired it, because I want it. My friends, you and I, as God's people, are his resting place. We are the ones he wants to be with. I don't even want to be with me most of the time. (laughs) He wants to be with me. He doesn't just tolerate me. He's not, well, I did the God thing, and so, yeah, you got to be a part. He did the God thing because he desires to be with us. The mission was his glory, yes, through who? Us. And so I'm, I don't want to preach here a self-centered sermon. Yes, it was for his glory, absolutely. But who was the glory through? Us. Who is he showing the glory to? Us. You are not just a means to an end. God desires to be with you. He desires to be with me, not because of our desirability, but because he's good, because he's merciful, because he is God. That was the whole point of the ark and the tabernacle and what would eventually become the temple is that he wanted to dwell with his people. He was showing his people, I want to be with you. I want to dwell among you. My friend, God does not grow weary of you. He wants you to grow, yes. He does not want you to stay where you are. He wants to see you mature and grow, but he is not in love with the future version of you that will grow. He is in love with the current version of you. He loves you now where you are. He desires you now, so much so that he will not leave you where you are now. I love the way Dane Ortland says it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. You can get free copies in our bookstore out here. He says it this way, the high and holy Christ does not cringe at reaching out and touching dirty sinners and numb sufferers. Such embrace is precisely what he loves to do. He cannot bear to hold back. We naturally think of Jesus touching us the way a little boy reaches out to touch a slug for the first time. Face screwed up, cautiously extending an arm, giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition only preaches a God like us. That's how we treat sinners and sufferers. That's how we treat broken people. That's how we treat people who are inconvenient, which is why we need the Bible to show us that God is not like us in this way. As a matter of fact, he's the exact opposite. We see in the person of Jesus, he goes towards sinners and sufferers. Not only does he not reject them, not only does he tolerate them, he welcomes them and decides, you know what? Of all the places I want to eat today, I want to go to your house because you are a sinner and a sufferer. He says, I did not come for the righteous, but for, I'm sorry, I did not come for the well, but for the sick. My friend, your sin and suffering is precisely the thing that Jesus finds attractive about you. Again, not so that you can stay there, because that's the kind of work that he does. He takes sin and turns it into righteousness. He takes brokenness and makes it whole again. My wife is a nurse, and I'll never forget, 
studying, and I'm, so I was at the time an undergrad major in English, so I'm writing papers and reading literature and all this stuff. She's over there, and she's eating potato chips, and she's scrolling through pictures of a dead cat that's splayed open. And I mean, she's just like digging it, like, yum, this is great, and like, oh, there's a spleen, yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to write my paper, and every time I even glance over, I'm like, Ugh. right? Nurses and doctors are weird. They, and it's, again, it doesn't make them bad doctors, or it actually makes them good nurses. They like sick people. They're fascinated by like, ooh, that's a heart, right? Again, the good ones, I'm sure some of them are just twisted psychos, but the good ones, it's because, it's because they like to heal. And in order to heal, they need to understand what's wrong. In order to heal, they need to understand organs and all those things, right? They're fascinated by it so that they can bring healing to it. That's God's relationship to you. He loves you. He is drawn towards you. Do not run away from him. Do you feel this tension? Not just in yourself, but in others, this tension between imperfection and God's delight? Or do you merely see the faults in your church and in its people? Is your life group too transparent or too guarded? Is the music merely too old or too new? Is the preaching too doctrinal or not doctrinal enough? Or in the case this morning, probably neither in both, right? There's always a flaw. This is where we tend to lie. We tend to become critics. That's not how God treats us. That's not how he calls us to treat one another. Yes, we identify things that are wrong. We identify things that need reform, just like God does. But brothers and sisters, we walk through those doors covered by the blood of Jesus, united to him and united to one another. And so when we look, we look with the eyes of our Father who sees not just the flaws, but sees the beauty, sees the perfection, sees what they could be and will be by his grace. You see, I'm a Texan by choice, but I'm an Alabamian by birth. And I love so much about Texas food. You guys kill brisket, Tex-Mex, slays. But you know what? I still love going to Cracker Barrel. And I go there, and I go there not because it tastes like Mama made it, because it doesn't, right? The biscuits are not like Mama made them, but they're the closest thing I can get this side of the Mississippi River. And so I love going because it's a small taste, not like Mama made it, but it's the closest thing I can get, right? Those fried apples, hers are better, but those are pretty good. You see, I love Cracker Barrel. It would be one thing I could say, well, I don't like it because they're just, it's an imitation of, I don't. I go and I get four plates. I get like fried chicken and waffles and like I biscuit. I want it all, right? I love it because those biscuits and fried apples and mashed potatoes are a small taste of Mama's cooking, Mama's cooking until I can go home and taste the fullness of it. You see, church, brothers and sisters, is not heaven, she is constantly in need of repentance and renewal and sometimes even reform. Those who love her well will not hide these flaws, but it's one of the closest tastes we can get to heaven. I would argue it is the closest taste we can get to heaven. And if God has not given up on his people, even after it quite literally killed him, what should our commitment, our patience, our desire to dwell in unity look like? The psalm closes here. 
This is where I'll land with some promises and then some hints at how God will keep those promises. Read with me verses 15 and 16. I will abundantly bless its food. I will satisfy its needy with bread. I will clothe its priests with salvation and its faithful people will shout for joy. The point here is that those who have God's presence will also have his gifts. Food, salvation, joy, things that the psalmist has asked for previously in the psalm, God says, I will give them all of that. God's blessings come with his presence. But I'm reminded of Jesus' exhortation, seek first what? The kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. It does not work in reverse. You don't seek first the things and get the kingdom added. But if you seek first the kingdom, the things will be added to you as well. My favorite one of these, though, is the request to be clothed in righteousness. Did you hear what it got turned into? He said earlier, clothe the priest in righteousness. And then verse 16, I will clothe its priest with salvation. God does this, doesn't he? We ask for one thing, and he goes exceedingly and abundantly before all we can ask or imagine above it all. He says, you wanted righteousness. I'll give you righteousness, and I'll give you everything that comes along with it. Salvation. You might come to Christ for forgiveness, but I guarantee you, you will stay for the forgiver. He is worth sticking around for. These last two verses are very strange. There I will make a horn grow for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown he wears will be glorious. A horn. David's gonna grow a horn? That doesn't sound like a good thing, right? It's kind of weird. David, unicorn David, right? That's not where he's going. So horn, right? What, what, what animal typically has horns that actually exist, not in fairy tales? Right, things like deer, goats, right? They typically have two of them, right? Um, but do you notice how he phrases it? I will make a horn grow for David, which assumes it's not there yet, or like in other images, it was there and then got knocked off and we need to grow another one. That's what's happening in Isaiah 11, where he says, I will raise up a root uh, um, from the stump. What word am I looking for? Shoot, there you go. I will grow up a shoot from the stump, right? So the tree's been cut down, but the tree's not dead. Right? There will come up a shoot from the stump. Same thing's happening here, right? Something's gonna come. Something new and better is going to come. He's gonna grow another one. I don't get to as much anymore. I uh, deer hunted a lot as a kid, and I remember one time I went to this uh, place that was like a hunting mecca. I don't know. I found out later this place was like thousands of dollars a year to hunt at, but we were doing it for free because we had just moved there and they were nice. But as we're driving out to the deer stand, uh, the guy's telling me, I've never killed anything with horns before. I'd, I'd had some does. I'd harvested some does for meat. They taste great, but I was really ready to, to get a trophy. You know, like I was 16 and I'd been hunting dozens of times and not, not gotten anything that I could brag about, right? So I was excited. And this guy's telling me, he's like, all right, buddy, so I'll tell you what, you're a young buck, you're a young guy. If you see an eight point, we'd usually tell you to pass on it. Eight point means it has eight points on it. It's a big, big buck. It's like, we'd usually tell you to pass on it because next year it'll be a 10. And we usually, you know, 12, 14 points, like huge trophy book. That's kind of what we're going for. But we'll be gracious to you. And if you see an eight or 10 point, you can go ahead and, you can go ahead and harvest that one. 
And I just remember thinking, dude, if I see like snow on the deer's head and I think there's white, like I'm going for it because I haven't, like I've never gotten a chance to do this before. Um, but what is, what is that for, right? What are the horns for? Well, one day they would be bigger. One day they would be majestic and large. So a little spike is a little fella, right? And as they continue to grow, they continue to be more majestic, more large, and also better for fighting and winning fights would be some of the implication here as well. So you want to let the horns grow because as they continue to grow, they get more glorious, more majestic. That's what this guy was getting at in his weird way of telling me. And you see in Luke 169, God kept his promise to raise up the most glorious horn he had ever raised. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Luke tells us that in the first chapter of his gospel, God kept this promise. He raised up a horn. He raised up something glorious and majestic, something that could kill any other enemy that would seek to fight against him. And yet, the crown he wears will be glorious, this promise says. As we looked at Jesus, as they looked at Jesus, the crown he wore was anything but glorious. The crown he wore was a crown of thorns. The crown he wore caused pain and suffering on top of his pain and suffering. And perhaps this morning you're wondering why that crown that you wear often feels more like a crown of thorns than a crown of righteousness. You see, this is not just a Christmas sermon about the incarnation. It's also an eschatology sermon about Jesus coming again. See, he made a promise, Jesus did, before he left. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. I would not have told you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you may know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is preparing a place for us. You see, David looked around at his home and realized it wasn't enough. No amount of cedar or luxury or Hobby Lobby wall art could fix that. He needed the permanent and potent presence of God in his life. I was right in what I told that child in children's church. God is everywhere. God doesn't just live in the sky. But I don't think I gave her the full picture. He is present in a unique way among his people. And the place he is preparing where the fullness of his presence will be experienced is heavenward. You see, Jesus will return and it will look like he's coming from the sky. And as we look up, we will see him, we will meet him there and he will take us home. Because you see, the ultimate plan was not just for God to dwell with us, it was for us to dwell with him. He came to our place to take us to his place or better yet, to make our place his place. Unite them to one, the new heavens and the new earth. John tells us that when Jesus returns to take us there, in Revelation 14, John looks and says, there was a lamb standing where? Standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
My friend, he wants to dwell with you. He wants you to dwell with his people, and he wants you one day to dwell with him. Are you walking in the way? Are you under the rule of his anointed one? Are you in community with his people? You see, God's kingdom begins now here in his church. How is he calling to you to respond to his presence this morning? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence. God, thank you for not abandoning us. Lord, we come with our feeble efforts to build you a house, to give you the glory and um, honor that's due you. And Lord, we recognize that it's nothing, Lord. It's pennies in the face of the glory that you are due, and yet you receive it gladly. Lord, you desire to be here with us. We don't know why. Lord, we don't know how, but we acknowledge that what little we bring, you receive gladly. So Lord, I pray for those here who are discouraged, who feel as though they're wearing a crown of thorns this morning. Lord, point their eyes to the day when the crowned one will return and will make all things new. Lord, I ask for those who have not yet begun following Jesus, that they don't know what it means to walk in the way, to experience the true presence of God. Lord, maybe they brought many things to you, their morals, their uh, political alliances, thinking that would be what justified them. And Lord, they are standing before you now, recognizing that they're standing before you in rags. And Lord, they need the robes of righteousness. Lord, wherever we are, help us to take our next step in, ob in obeying and following you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.